Well, church, today we're going to be partaking of communion. And if you want, take your Bibles and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And what I'm going to do this morning, I am going to share with you a a communion meditation. So this is not a sermon today. I'm not going to be exegeting any passages. I'm not going to be preaching um, on a particular passage. The only thing I want to do today is I want to meditate upon what the Word of God says here, particularly in regards to two elements. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I want to, I'm going to read verses 23 through 26. But I thought to myself, with everything that's happening in our world today, that screams, that just wants to occupy our minds as well as our emotions, and to bring us, to divide us, from among one another. I thought it would be good for us to step back and just feast on some scriptures out of the word of God today. And that's what you're going to get. I want to give you a number of passages. And I just want you to absorb those and ask the Lord to just give you a greater depth of understanding of the reality of these verses when we think of what Jesus has done. Because here's the thing, folks. Everything we're going through right now will come to pass. One day it's going to be gone. And the only thing that's going to remain for those who are in Christ is the goodness of God. And so I want to take us back and just get us to focus on that again and just to be reminded of that. So if you have your Bibles open or on, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 20 through 26. And here's what we read. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father in heaven, even though these words were recorded for us more than 2,000 years ago, I pray now, Father, this morning that the words or the truths within these words would penetrate our hearts deeply. So speak to us, Lord, through this meditation. In the name of Jesus, amen. So when it comes to communion, as we all know, there are two elements that take front and center, wine and bread. And I hope that you'll be able to follow me through the twists and turns of this meditation as we look at the wine and bread. And I want to start first by looking at the wine, which is a representation of the blood of Christ, which was shed for you specifically and for me, through which we receive the forgiveness of our sins. Now, the wine is only one part of the whole 
but it must not be taken lightly. And there are no shortages of passages in the Bible that hammer out this point for us again and again and again. If it were not for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, there would be no forgiveness of sins. And that's why the Bible continues to ring this bell of truth for us so that we might make much of it. And so I want to give you a number of passages just to remind us of how often, and these are just a few of the passages that the Bible speaks of this. In Matthew chapter 26, 28, Jesus said, For this is my blood of the covenant, listen, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we don't make light of the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 7, in him, that's in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. And that is why one of the reasons we named our church Redemption Bible Chapel. Because in him, in Jesus Christ, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And you remember grace in a, in a very basic elementary definition of grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve, right? I've, I've spoken much about it throughout this week with people. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, which is the wrath of God, which we earned. Grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve, and that is forgiveness. And he did it. By Christ shedding his blood on the cross for us. Again, in Colossians 1.14. In whom, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I want you to notice, that, and notice these things as I'm going through these verses through the epistles. That none of them, or they're all written in past tense. We have received forgiveness, right? In fact, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, we read again, And from Jesus Christ, now it names him specifically, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. It's all past tense. This is an incredible point for us to understand that our redemption is already secured. If you are in Christ, it is a done deal. It's not a repetitive thing that needs to continue to happen. It is done once for all, and we'll get into that a little later. But these are just a few of the passages that continue to hammer home this point. The blood of Jesus, which is the blood of the new covenant, the new covenant was ratified by the blood of Jesus. And it is the means, the only means by which our sins are forgiven. Asking God for forgiveness is not sufficient. Jesus had to pay for it, right? Doing works to try to earn God's forgiveness is not sufficient. Jesus had to pay for our sins. That keeps coming back to that. And why does the Bible make such a big deal about this? It's because our sin against God is so egregious, so horrifying, that the only thing sufficient to pay for our penalty, for our sin against God, and satisfy the wrath of God, is the blood of God himself. 
Let that sink in, brothers and sisters. Nothing else was sufficient to deal with our sins because everything else has been saturated with sin except the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, God's own Son. And that's why when we partake of communion, we drink the wine. It's a reminder of the price that God himself paid for the forgiveness of our sins. But it's not the only thing that we observe in communion. We also observe the bread. The bread, as we all know, represents the body of Christ, which was broken for us. What an incredible reality that is. It's astounding, again, to see how much the Bible alludes to and points to this fact throughout the entirety of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. But I want to take you back for a moment to the Old Testament and show you how the Israel or the practices, the religious practices of Israel pointed to the body and the blood of Christ, particularly in regards to their sacrifices. And I think it'll help us actually to understand the new covenant more or more fully when we understand why they dealt with sins in the Old Testament the way they did. You see, Israel proved that all of humanity sins against God. Remember, they entered into a covenant with God. And God said, if you will do all these things, then you shall be my people. You shall be a holy priesthood unto me. And God said, if you enter into this, this covenant with me, you will receive all these blessings if you do these things. And Israel said, we will do it. So having the favor of God upon them with all of God's blessings at their disposal, they still proved that they were just like Adam and Eve and sinned. And you and I are the same today. So we can't point back at Adam and see Adam and Eve and say, if only they hadn't. Because the Bible shows us throughout the all, all the Old Testament and the New, and in our experience today, that we are just like Adam and Eve, and we have done the same. And what we see throughout the Bible is that sin is evil and it is unjust, and that God is holy. And righteous, and because he is holy and righteous, he must therefore punish sin, or else God himself would be unjust. And so, God, from the foundations of the world, in his great mercy, in his loving kindness, in his grace towards us, already established a plan as to how to save people from their sins. And so when we look at the Old Testament practices, it was actually an illumination of the compassion of God pointing forward to Jesus Christ. So if you were to take your Bibles and turn over to Leviticus chapter 5 and verses 5 and 6, let me just read it for you. It states this, and he's talking about God is laid out for them the Levitical law and the offerings and sacrifices that they're to offer. And he's talking about sins here. And he says, and when he, this is the, the perpetrator, the person having committed sins, realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses his sins he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord as compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat of a sin offering, 
or for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Now, there's many passages that we could talk about this morning, and we could look at the passage that refers to the two goats and one being the scapegoat. Well, we won't look into that today, but I want to show you something here. The way that God instructed Israel to deal with their sins in the Old Testament was, in, according to this passage, three things had to happen. Number one, the person had to realize their sin, right? You had to be aware that you had sinned. Number two, you had to confess your sin. Now, let me pause on this for a moment. When we speak of confessing sin, oftentimes we think of confessing sin as coming before a group of people or someone and revealing what we have done wrong. But that's actually not the true definition of the word confession. The word confession actually means to agree with God that you have done wrong. That's what it means to confess, to agree with God. God, I have sinned in your sight. I have sinned against you and you alone. That's what it means to confess. So you had to acknowledge that what you had done was an offense to God. And then so thirdly, the third thing the person had to do, excuse me, was to, was to um, give compensation or make compensation for their sin. And when the way they would do this, an animal was chosen according to the parameters that God had set forth. And that animal would then be sacrificed by the priest. And the person's sins would then be atoned for. Now, what does it mean to make atonement for sin? Now, here, particularly in this passage, atonement means to cover. It actually doesn't mean to take away and be gone forever. It means to kind of, in a sense, kind of put a blanket over top so it's out of sight. That's, that's, that's what the word atonement here means. And, and I don't want us to miss this. This is important. See, when they offered the sacrifice of an animal for their sins, their sins would only be covered. And it was only the past sins that had been covered. Not the ones that they would commit any time after that act of giving that sacrifice, making compensation. We can't miss this. This is important. Why is this important? Because that means that they would have to, again and again, time after time, confess their sins and make compensation for sins. So they would have to keep offering these sacrifices Year after year after year, and it was a constant reminder of their sinfulness, right? And it was a constant reminder that there is a price for sin. It is a constant reminder that God is holy and just, and he must punish sins. This constant reminder. Now, the question is, put that on pause for a moment, how does this compare to the New Testament or the New Covenant element of forgiveness? And let me sum it up for you. In the New Testament, forgiveness covers past, present, and future sins. If you are in Christ, all of your sins are forgiven, not just the ones in the past, 
Forgiveness in its entirety has already been given and offered. Nothing left, nothing undone. It's all covered. What's more, we can see that it's removed as well. But I want to stay on this for a moment here. I want you to see that the forgiveness offered through Christ is complete in its entirety, lacking nothing. When you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, listen to these, verse, these verses here that I'm going to read to you. For Christ also suffered... How many times? Once, yes, once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Christ is the righteous. You and I are the unrighteous. Why did he do it? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Notice it was done once. Right, then we skip over and we go to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, where we read about Christ and it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. Speaking of Christ, listen to what it says about him. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this, here it is again, and if you can read it up on the screen, read it with me. Once for all, when he offered up himself. These small words are so important in Scripture. And again, we're reminded when Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 6.10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Folks, grab onto these verses, these small words. These are important words of truth that tell us so much about the gospel of Jesus Christ and its perfectness, if you will, and its all-sufficiency to do everything it needed to do that you and I might be saved once for all. And so we see that under the new covenant, the New Testament, we receive forgiveness one time, which is sufficient for all time and for all sin. In the old covenant, you would have to raise an animal or buy an animal and then sacrifice it, and it only covered your sin or the sins that you had committed. But in the New Testament, under the new covenant, Jesus pays for our sins. He paid for our sins and paid it in full, and he paid for all of it, past, present, in future. And this is why we then begin to read once you get beyond the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection and his ascension to heaven and the, and the church is born and built up and the, and the kingdom is established, if you will, and we read verses like Ephesians 4.32. Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, Listen, as God in Christ is forgiving you. Is that what it says? It's not what it says, right? What does it say? As God in Christ has forgiven you. Past tense. 
you are already forgiven. Or Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. Listen to this again. Having forgiven, past tense, you all trespasses. Or we go to Colossians 3, verse 13. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Listen, let me pause here for a moment. How many of our issues would be done away with if we would simply follow the pattern that Christ laid out for us in the New Testament and follow his, the lead of the gospel? I have been perfectly forgiven all things in Jesus Christ. Therefore, instead of making a mountain out of every molehill, I'm going to follow the lead of my brother, my friend, and my Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for me, and I will forgive them. Oh, what a glorious thing, right? This is what we're called to. Or 1 John 2, verse 12. Again, John writing to the church, he says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Oh, man, you know what? God never brings up our past sins. He never throws them in our face. We are already forgiven for his name's sake. Why does he say that, for his name's sake? I think in part it's because of this. Because if God were to take our sins and stick them back into our face, once we've come to faith in Christ, then God himself is ignoring and avoiding what Christ already accomplished. You see? And so therefore, God won't bring up and take our sins and stick them to us again. Because what Christ, his son, has done is complete once for all. This is the difference between the old covenant sacrifice for sins through an animal and the new covenant sacrifice for sins through Jesus. It is finished. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. He meant what he said. It is finished. Under the old covenant, sins were only covered out of God's sight because the blood of bulls and goats can never remove or forgive sins. So why bother then? If you're in the Old Testament. If you were to live in those days. Why bother then with the sacrifices at all. If they couldn't remove sins. And a very simple answer to that is this. Because it was an act of faith. Looking ahead to the coming of the true sacrificial lamb of God. Who alone finally and fully and truly would take away the sins of the world. Under the old covenant, a man would bring a lamb to the priest when he had sinned, and the priest would kill that lamb. And it would be a bit of a disturb, disturbing thing for us today, living in our, in our, what do you want to call it, sanitized society. But he would take, he would then come, and he would approach the altar... And the priest who would drain the blood from the lamb would take some of the blood and sprinkle it on the altar. And then he would take the other gallon or two or three gallons and he would pour it around the base of the altar. It was a very disturbing sight. 
At least it would be to us. And it would pool around the base. But just imagine that. It would just be terrible. But it signified that atonement had been made for sin. But there was something else unusual when they offered something for the sin or as a sin sacrifice. And that is what they did with the body of the lamb that had been sacrificed. The animal that were offered as a sin sacrifice, and we know they had many offerings and sacrifices that they offered, but particularly the one for the sin sacrifice, even after the blood had been sprinkled on the altar and the rest of it poured around the base, the body then of that lamb or goat was taken outside of the city, away from the presence of God, and burnt. You see, only the blood was acceptable, acceptable, acceptable because it represented forgiveness. And you would read in the Old Testament that life was found in the blood. But the body of the animal was burned outside the city because, listen, the carcass of that animal, which bore the sins of the people, was considered unclean. And so, therefore, it had to be removed. You, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll remember often having read that anything that was considered unclean was not permitted within the city walls. It had to be taken outside the city. Why is that? Because uncleanness was a reflection of sin. That's why anything unclean had to stay outside the city. And this is extremely important for us to understand. Let me, let me try and connect the dots for us here. If we, with this mindset, understanding that even this sacrifice, animal that had been sacrificed, that had man's sins confessed upon it, had to be taken outside the city because it was now unclean, burnt outside the city out of the presence of God, we read in Hebrews 13, 11, and 12, listen, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. It's everything I just told you. Now listen to verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Meditate upon that. Let that sink in. And I'm not going to give you full exposition of this, but I want to point out a few things. I want to ask this question. Why was the body of sin, of the sin sacrifice taken outside of the body and burnt? We know because it was a representation of sin, and which was or uncleanness, which was a representation of sin, therefore taken outside and burnt. But here we now see that it was a shadow pointing to what Jesus, the true sacrificial lamb of God, would do and become. You see, Jesus would be taken outside of the city. And he would be treated as an unclean sinner. 
where he would die. So then the question that we need to ask is this. When? When did Jesus become the, re- the reflection of sin? Because when Jesus died on the cross, outside of the city, he represented sin. When did he become sin? When you and I were grafted into Jesus. Jesus died outside the city, outside the city representing sin because he was representing you and me on the cross. We were the unclean sinners. And he came out of the city because of our uncleanness. And then furthermore, he came to those who were unclean, you and me. And he took our uncleanness upon himself. And he became sin for us when we were grafted into him. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, we, you and me, might become the righteousness of God. Let that sink in. When Jesus hung on that cross, he represented Every sin you ever committed. And every righteous deed and every right, all the righteousness that is in Christ Jesus was credited to you and me. Why would God do that? It's because the only way for you and I to be declared clean and forgiven was for Christ to take our sin upon himself. For, and that happens by you and I being united to Jesus on the cross. And now I want to point out another biblical truth that I don't think we ever speak much of. At least not pointedly. I've been talking about sins that we've committed or may commit. But in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's not the word sins, it's actually the word sin. This is interesting. This is a noun. Okay, we're going back into grammar school here for just a moment. This is a noun, not a verb, right? A verb when, when we read, when we read the Word sins as a verb in the Bible, it speaks of sinful actions that we've done, things we've committed. But when it's a noun, it's not talking about what we have done. It's talking about the element or the principle within us, inside of us, which is the reason why we sin. You see, our sinful actions are the result of the principle of sin within us. We need to get this. This is so important. 
The sin principle resides within each and every one of us, believer and unbeliever alike. You see, the biggest problem is not that we commit acts of sin. Our biggest problem is that we have indwelling sin. We have the principle of sin within us, which is why we commit acts of sins. We are sinners by nature. It is within us in our fallen nature. And so therefore, as unbelievers, we are enslaved to the principle of sin within us. As Christians, we're set free from it, but still tempted by the principle of sin within us. And this is why, if you're a Christian, you are still tempted by sin. Because the sin principle still resides within you. But be not discouraged because through Jesus Christ, you've been set free. The problem is that sin principle within you, which many refer to as the old man, and we read about in the Bible, wants you to think that you are still enslaved. So there it treats you as though you're still enslaved. And it tells you to get up and do its bidding. You know you want it. You know you need it. Come and do it. And I won't leave you alone until you've done it. And that's what we feel. But it's a lie. It's a lie if you are in Christ. It's a lie. You don't have to give in. But this is where we're weak, right? Because we've known this old master for so long. And we feel like we have to give in. But we don't have to. And this is what this does, reveals our weakness. And listen, folks. What does Paul teach us about our weakness? When I am weak, then... He is strong, so we don't have to give in. But it takes us to recognize that, to recognize that we are free indeed. And therefore, in our weakness, I can step aside and tell my old master, I am not giving in, even though every fiber of my being is pulling me towards that. But by faith, I can stand over here and say, you are not my master. Christ is my master, right? See, through Jesus, the power of sin, did, and again, that's the element or the principle of sin within us, has been broken. It's no longer your master, and this is why we read in Romans 6, verses 10 through 12, for the death that he died, Jesus, he died to sin. That's the principle of sin, not just the things you did. Once for all, right? But the life he lives, he lives to God. Speaking about Jesus, now he turns the table and he's looking at us and he says, so you also must consider yourself, or the New King James translation says, reckon yourself therefore dead indeed unto sin and alive to God Christ Jesus. Let not sin reign, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Back to verse 11, this is such an important voice. Voice? Yes, it's through the voice of God, but the verse of God here. So you must consider yourselves. Why do you have to consider it? Because you're still going to feel temptations as a child of God. But we, in that moment, when we're so used to being enslaved by it, and we still feel that pull, having been set free in Christ, who overcame the power of sin, I can now step aside and say, no, I have died to you. You can scream and yell at me and entice me all you want, but I am dead to you, and I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christianity is not something we just float along in. It is warfare. Warfare within us. 
within. But what an incredible truth, isn't it? That he has set us free from the principle or the power of sin within us. And so when we bring this all together today, and we take communion, the wine reminds us of the shed blood of Christ through whom we have received the once for all forgiveness of Christ in full. And the bread reminds us of the bodily death of Christ, his body which was broken for us, by which our old man that was enslaved to sin within us died, and we have been set free in Christ. And I pray that this morning, that this truth would give us great hope as we now turn to communion. And I don't want anybody to leave for this. I want to encourage you all to stay for this. And listen, if you are visiting with us today and you profess Jesus to be Savior and Lord of your life, trusting him and his gospel for the forgiveness of your sins and for the free gift of eternal life, we invite you to participate with us. But I would also like to state, if you are not a Christian this morning, I would pray that at this moment, you might turn to Jesus and trust in him for the forgiveness of all your sins and the freedom from the power of sin within you. Yield your life to Jesus. And by his power, live for the glory of God who loved you and gave himself for you. I want to take a moment right now before we partake of the elements and just take a moment in prayer. Just bow your heads with me for a moment. And as we've heard these truths this morning, we're reminded of the effectiveness of the gospel of Christ. We're reminded of the power of the blood of Christ, why his blood was shed, and we're reminded of why his body was broken for us. And the reality is none of us deserve to participate in this on our own accord. The only reason we are able to partake of communion is because of the mercy and the grace of God that he has extended to us. I just pray this moment, you just take time right now and just look to Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. If you've never called on him before, would you call on him this morning? By faith, call on him and be saved. Perhaps you are a Christian and you feel that your life is such a mess that you don't have a right to participate in communion. And here's what I want you to know. If you grieve over your sin, if you are repentant over your sin, then you should participate in communion. Because we are not worthy to participate in communion. That's when we're in the right place, when we understand that, that's when we should participate in communion because then we acknowledge the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in all that he has done. So Lord, this morning, 
Perhaps even this morning when we came in here, we struggled with bitterness, envy, jealousy, anger. Maybe we were at strife with someone, Lord, or presently are right now over things that have already been forgiven through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray right now this morning that we would be humble, that we would confess our sins before you right now, that we would agree with you that we have done wrong, that we have sinned against you, but in this moment, embrace the forgiveness that has already been given to us through Jesus Christ. Right now, this morning, Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. And as we participate in communion, Lord, I pray that we would have resolved in our own hearts to forgive those who have offended us or we may have offended. Lord, to do your work within us this morning here because you are worthy. You are worthy, Lord, and you've, you've done all of this for us. You don't need to keep doing this again and again. I pray, Lord, there would be a true humility within us. Lord, would you just meet with us this morning? As we now turn to the elements, we look at the shed blood of Christ. We look at the broken body of Christ. We recognize all that Jesus is for us and all that he's done for us so that we might be saved. And that he'll continue to do through us. Thank you for a perfect, sinless, holy high priest who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, Lord, be glorified as we participate in the elements in Jesus' name. Amen.